So what did we learn from this exercise? Time Twister is trash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Playing With Power podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things CEDH, EDH, and Magic the Gathering. I am your host, Ryan. And I am your host, Callahan. And today we are going to be talking about what cards would possibly go onto a CEDH ban list and why. Please note, this doesn't mean we do think that CEDH should have its own ban list. In fact, I personally hold the opposite opinion. I wrote a whole article about it. You could read it if you want. But before we get into that, we need to pay the bills. Our merchandise is now available in our store. We have dice, coins, playmats, tokens, sleeves, and more all available. Go to playingwithpowermtg.com and help support our channel. You can also help support us on Patreon. Patrons get access to our Discord, Webcam League, Play Days, early access to videos, names in the credits of our show, exclusive videos, merchandise, and even the ability to be on an episode. There are tiers available for everyone, so go to patreon.com slash playingwithpowermtg and help support the show. And speaking of Patreons, we wanted to go to a Patreon shout-out for every single episode, and today's Patreon shout-out is to Darius Mitchell. Thank you, Thank Darius. Thank you, Darius Mitchell. Appreciate you. We love, we love our Mox Opals. Yes. We love our Mox Opal patrons. Yes, we do. Just as much as we love our Mox Tantalite patrons. I mean, we love all of our patrons personally. We love all of our patrons. But, you know, I love the Mox Tantalites the most. Yeah, they are. They're our bread and butter. <laughs> I love you guys. Anyways. I mean, I love you all, but, you know. <laughs> I love you. I love you all. You know who I love the least? <laughs> our Mox Pearl <laughs> patrons. Please don't Those. unsubscribe, Mox Pearls. That was just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But if you make me play against one more stacks pile again, I swear. I swear to God, I'll cancel this Pearl tier right now. I'll, I'll put your card, your favorite card onto this CEDH band list, which we're about to talk about. <laughs> All right. Go ahead and kick us off, Cal. Yes, of course. So as I mentioned right at the top of the show, uh, we just wanted to think about the concept of what cards are maybe actually bannable in CEDH and why. If CEDH were to be its own format and whatnot, what cards would kind of just have to go on to the ban list? We have two kind of major overarching sections here. Um, one is obviously power level. Um, you know, there's some really powerful cards that we play around with, which ones of those might be banworthy. And then the other one might, uh, something people don't talk about as much, but is something you do see considered quite a lot, um, when wizards is managing formats and whatnot. And that is tournament considerations. Uh, does a card eat up too much time? Does a card, uh, cause consistent problems in tournaments for whatever reason or another? So we'll talk about that too. But of course, first we're going to start with power level, Ryan. What is a card that is too powerful in the CDH format and why? Well, one of the things I want to think about when when we're considering what cards we think may or may not belong on this list is how it affects the format. Because the regular commander ban list is more of a philosophy, not the philosophy document, but a philosophy on how you should approach commander games. That's why not everything is on there, even though some things are discouraged. And while some things are on there only as a representation or a, uh, like a flag or a, a, a signpost that says, hey, this kind of stuff is generally discouraged. And those types of things are kind of what 
feed and drive the commander ban list. We don't always see a commander. We don't other ban lists that we see are based upon the things that we just talked about, power levels, tournament considerations, um, and also just the homogenization of a certain format. When we start to see something get way, way too homogenized and every single deck is either running that or running away to beat that, that's when you start to see a problem that should probably warrant something like a ban. So when when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about it along those lines. I'm thinking, okay, let's forget Commander Philosophies for a second. This is CEDH now. Nothing's off the table. What is it that we would like to see either create better diversity in the format, maybe create a little bit more, you know, variance or, you know, stop consolidating so many things into so few archetypes? What are the types of things that we might want to consider banning based upon those factors? The first one I would have to say is Dockside Extortionist. I absolutely love this card. Everyone else absolutely loves this card. And this card is in every godforsaken deck that runs red. I don't care if it's not a creature strategy. I don't care if it's, you know, if you're not only using it for something like a combo potential, you are absolutely running this card. It is unbelievable. You know, Ryan, I entirely agree. Um, I was reading the uh, this will date this episode a little bit, but I was reading uh, the the brand new, you know, quarter one of 2023 rules update from the commanders committee, uh, you know, the commander rules committee yesterday. And um, there was no changes. They said no changes in the format. Keeping our eye on poison because obviously fire XE all will be one coming out. People are always worried about how many poison counters should really kill people in commander. And they said something really succinct and interesting, I think, about Dockside Extortionists, which they finally announced they're kind of like taking off of their watch list because they determined that, you know, given all those things that you were just mentioning uh, a minute ago about what actually makes for a banned card at EDH, Dockside doesn't really meet that. And what they were saying was that Dockside Extortionist does a very good job of scaling with the table that you're playing at. Um, since it counts, you know, artifacts and enchantments, you know, at a, at a lot of more casual tables, you know, people are playing their Arcane Signet and their Soul Ring. But past that, you know, a lot of three CMC rocks, definitely not packing 12 to 15 rocks the same way that we often are. You know, maybe there's a few random enchantments out there. But the the Dockside, when we get to this power level of the format, it scales incredibly well. You know, Dockside, we all play it because you two CMC rituals. Uh, historically are very problematic in Magic the Gathering. If we look at other formats uh, like Legacy or Modern, you'll you'll see that like Seething Song is banned. In Seething Song, you pay three mana to get five. five. Yeah, or uh, Rite of Flame is banned. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pay one mana to get two, two mana, maybe three or four mana, depending on, you know, because you can play four of them, right? So it can be more than two, but... Pay one mana to get two. Uh, uh, tons of rituals are banned, and those are pay two mana to make three mana. Pay three mana to make five mana. Dockside usually reads pay two mana to make five mana at minimum, maybe six, maybe eight, maybe a huge number. And they're treasures. It's not like you have to use it now or lose it. You can use it, uh, use five of your mana to try to do something, get stopped, and come back around to your turn and you still have three treasures left over to play with way too strong, Ryan. It's got to go on the ban list. I remember back in the day, um, 
in the casual times of 2000, I don't know, you know, 11 through 14 and stuff like that of casual magic, uh, they were talking about primetime and profit of Krufix. And they were talking about how the entire game warps around it. And Dockside has this problem. You'll look at mono blue lists and they'll run Phantasmal Image. And you're like, what are you running that for? Are you copying something? Yours? What am I missing here? I'm, I'm not really seeing what you're copying. They're like, oh, it's a blue Dockside. Okay, that's a problem. If you're running Phantasmal Image just to make it a blue Dockside, Dockside is getting way too strong and really kind of homogenizing a lot of this format into the point where people are talking about, well, I don't like Timothrasios as much anymore because I just misread so much for things like Dockside. Dockside is just so unbelievably format warping on this end of the format that I think it's banning while upsetting a th just tons of people will absolutely create a lot more diversity without that such cheap and free, you know cheap access to these combo enablers to all of this mana and such explosive potential in this scaled up table like you said exactly and speaking of cards that timna thrasios is missing out on when they are not playing red let's move on to maybe the even more powerful probably not more powerful but the card that's actually winning so many of these red decks games underworld breach um it's no secret to people who play CDH that Underworld Breach is uh, incredibly popular. Um, you see it everywhere. It's wildly strong. Um, it's part of a com like three-card combo, which is arbitrarily easy to put together with the card Intuition and whatnot. Underworld Breach, premium win-con in our format, even just so happens to be a valuable piece. You know, pay two mana. Put Underworld Breach into play. All right, all of my stuff has Escape Three now. So, you know, I know, I know that uh, we were talking just uh, yesterday about how Godo randomly a lot of Godo lists will just play it because you know it's a two CMC. Get some of my stuff back. A little red regrowth action. A little red Yogmoth's will. So, I I don't think there's a world in which Underworld Breach can stick around in a CDH format with its own ban list. So many decks on the decklist database uh, actually say that this is what their name is. This is, you know, something, something breach. This is blue farm breach or, you know, Timna, you know, Timna, whatever breach. It's it is such a defining and huge archetype in our format because of just how resilient it is. The moment that Underworld Breach resolves, you have all of your counter magic in your graveyard, too. So you pretty much just won. Like, they're like, oh, well, guess what? I'll vouch your breach. That's fine. I have a Pact of Negation in my graveyard. I'll counter it. And then someone else does. They're like, that's okay. I have a Pact of Negation in my graveyard. I'll just counter it. When they printed a card that was better than Yawgmoth's Will, we have we made a it cheaper? problem. And like, sure, there's a cost. You have to exile stuff from your graveyard. But I wonder if there's like any easy ways we can get a lot of cards in our graveyard. Have you ever heard of any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. And it's like, oh, did you know this synergizes well with Lion's Eye Diamond? Be like, yeah, I mean, Lion's Eye Diamond was already good, but you found another way to break Lion's Eye Diamond. It's already broken. And it's just it's unbelievably powerful. It's like what I just said. I, You know, if you you printed a better Yawgmoth's Will, because it is better than Yawgmoth's Will in every single way. Yes. Oh, you have to escape. Who cares? You still get the cards back in your graveyard. When I cast my brain freeze, they don't they don't all get exiled. I get to recast the brain freeze. I get to recast the counter magic I get to recast my everything. That is absolutely busted. 
<clears throat> and it was also banned in multiple formats. And it's currently at so. long last overtaking modern. It is it is at long last become one of the best modern decks. Which surprised me, quite frankly, that it took you this know? long, in my Same. opinion. Yeah. It was banned from uh, Legacy Instantly, in pretty very much, yeah. short order. Yeah. And obviously it's, you know, LED is not you know, LED is isn't correct, available yeah. in modern, but that's a whole other discussion. But Underworld Breach would make it so that so many other strategies are now not all revolving around Breach. Everything is just like, well, you know, you could slot a Breach line because you're in this colors. Oh, it's a Breach deck now. You know, oh, you can put this in there because it's, you know, oh, you may, you may not have access to wipe, but that's OK, because this and this are there. So you can make Breach out of it and just everything becomes Breach. You you put it so well when you said Mono Red Godo decks are running it as reclaim effects. That's that's showing you the power. Like if I get disrupted and you destroy my helm, I can cast Underworld Breach, escape three cards, cast Seething Song or something from my graveyard twice, by the way. Just net positive each one as long as I have the cards and then just escape helm again. It wasn't even the combo. It was just for just raw value. That's how often these things are getting slotted into these decks. That's that's once again a homogenization thing. And it's pushing out other strategies that might otherwise get more of a chance to shine simply because they're just not as good as breach. Unfortunately. Yep. At floor an incredibly powerful uh, and unique. Um effect that many decks wants and at ceiling an incredibly compact homogenizing powerful hard to interact with wing con underworld breach you're out of here speaking of homogenizing incredibly compact easy to uh easy to make work win cons next up you know it you love it it's a merfolk wizard it costs two blue when it enters the battlefield, you look at X cards equal to your devotion to blue. And then if X is equal to or less than the number of cards left in your library, you win the game. It's a 1-3, I think. I never have to think about the power and toughness of this card. It's Thassa's Oracle. Ryan, pop off. Out in the distance, I heard the cry of 10,000 fans as they immediately unsubscribed from our podcast. <laughs> look. Thassa's Oracle is I, I maybe I should say I should start this with saying, hey, why would you ban Thassa's Oracle? Why wouldn't you just ban Demonic Consultation and Tainted Pact? Thassa's Oracle is fine if I can manually assemble it. No, I'm sorry. Thassa's Oracle is the problem here. The reason being that Thassa's Oracle is the problem is that you have basically every deck, like we said with Underworld Breach, as long as you can want, run blue and black or Maybe I can even take that away. As long as you can run blue, you can win the game with Thassa's Oracle, and many do. I've seen this in Kennen lists. I've seen this in Elsha that uses Storm and Prowess and stuff like that. Still run Thassa's Oracle. If you run blue, you find a way Hell, to just even, do it. I've seen even, it in even Urza lists. The like, last yeah. iter- iteration of Rashmi, like back when people were trying to make it work, you played Thassa's Oracle and you got rid mm-hmm. of your library with Paradigm Shift. A terrible four CMC yep. enchantment that lets you exile your library. Uh, Thought yep. Lash was Sorry, another paradigm one. shift. You, Thought yeah, Lash is the, the card I was thinking of, but Paradigm Shift oh, okay, is yeah. another yeah, terrible so. card that lets you kind of exile your library. 
But basically, if you can find a way to get rid of your library, which, by the way, is super easy to do, you'd run Thassa's Oracle, uh, infinite mana plus a draw. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, Urza, uh, Lord High Artificer, you just exile them all. Just do a flip and then cast it from exile. Like, th there's so many things that you can do. And the reason that we say Thassa's Oracle is because of that ETB effect. That's really the kicker here, because Labman's been around since like 2011, and you don't see us clamoring for a Labman ban, do you? That's because of the difficulty to interact with the triggered ability on the stack. Everyone has always clamored and made the horrible takes all the time online that says that dies to removal. Why would that's not that that card is just fine. It dies to removal. There's no protection, blah, blah, blah. Thassa's Oracle doesn't even, doesn't even fall under that uh, one. <laughs> It doesn't even fall under that. Exactly. It, you, I think you have a, exactly maybe three effects in the entire yeah, there's game. Like three three or four versions it. of like stifle effects. Yeah. Exactly. That's four cards. And you have to have it in your hand, have to be in its colors, and you have to have it exactly when the triggered ability hits. No. That's super hard to interact with. It's super difficult to 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 make that work. And it's and it created you want to talk about homogenization. I could talk about this all day. I'll shut up. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Thassa's or You know, I, I, I think you uh, said it pretty succinctly. And a lot of this does fall under a bit of what we said about Underworld Breach as a wing con as well. Um, you know, uh, of course, there's always going to be homogenization in a competitive format. There's always going to be like the best thing to do. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later, actually. But when it comes to Thassa's Oracle, it is hard. I think you would be hard, hard pressed to find something that could ever be like as powerful and as good as Thassa's Oracle in CEDH. Um, you know, even if they printed another really broken thing, it's it's pretty hard to interact with a creature unless you come packed with the worst counter spells imaginable. It's pretty hard to deal with as you said, an ETB, unless you choose to register Stifle in your CDH deck, which I know a lot of people have split opinions on. I don't think it's worth it. Um, yes. Catch me packing Void Slime. Um, <laughs> it's the, like blue, the blue, 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 green, green one that, yes, it's spell it's, activated it's trigger spell ability. plus Stifle wow. is what it is. Um, <laughs> But I know, crazy, right? Wow. Um, you know, it's hard to interact with a, that ability. So pretty much like once it's on the stack, if it resolves, you know, if you don't happen to have like literally your force of will in hand or whatever, when it's put on the stack, you're probably just losing the game. And, you know, losing the game. Two card mm -hmm. combos, fine. Two card combos that cost three to four mana and are very hard to interact with, et cetera, et cetera. Miss me with that. Yeah, I... I yeah I agree and but that's what I'm saying this is so unbelievably <clears throat> polarizing I would say that people are like oh it's such a it's such a compact clean and easy win con because I have seen what happens when you don't have Thassa's Oracle and there's people that out there that are like trying to not run Thassa's Oracle and sometimes they have some difficulty closing out the game because they have to assemble a five six piece interaction with this that and the other and it's just like yeah, okay, I understand. It would have been easier to generate infinite mana, empty your library, and cast us as Oracle. Sometimes it's easier to have that clean win con. But we have seen such a ubiquitous amount of this card that we don't... You are constantly measuring everything else to it. Is that as good as Thassa's Oracle? If it's not, 
eh, I'd rather just run Oracle. So it, it stifles what would other be possibly new emerging strategies or archetypes simply because of its existence. Well, it's not as good, so I'm not even going to try. And that's a problem. Ryan, I deeply, deeply agree with you. Thoughts is Oracle. Band. Bong. Um, by know, by exactly. all of our fans. But, hey, no, there's a lot of people on our, in our YouTube comments who hate Thassa's Oracle. Oh, that's it's so that's boring. true. That's true. Oh, it's the it's the most oh, boring it's win. So terribly boring. Another Thassa's Oracle win. Unsubscribe. Oh, public public <laughs> subscriber subscribe. to channel for four years. Okay, buddy. See you on Friday. <laughs> See you on Friday. <laughs> oh snap! Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, moving on. Those were kind of those were kind of our top like obvious picks. And uh, going past there, we have a few more things that are kind of a little more, um, a little more. Would we ban these things? I don't know. Um, but we do have like one more definite ban. We kind of came around to this on the assumption that kind of is cdh as its own format there's kind of a blank slate we don't have any of these edh banned cards banned in the format anymore and um there's a there's a lot of stuff on the edh ban list that could probably still remain banned in cdh uh, like paradox engine obviously um but <laughs> uh we we wanted to specifically call out the the power the power eight eight of the power nine on the ban list no ancestral recall no moxes yeah. no lotus uh, you know, all that. No, no time vault. Is time vault a power of the power nine? I can never remember. It's not. Okay. Uh, it's not. It's Black Lotus, the five moxes, uh, oh, time twister. twister yeah. uh, okay, time, time walk. Yeah, okay. Yeah, get time recall. walk out of here. Uh, time vault, that's banned too. Miss me with the time vault. Um, I played enough no ban lists to know that it is absolutely yeah, format warping. But, um, it is. Past all of that, time twister. Time Twister banned in CEDH, Ryan? Time Twister is a very powerful card that has been banned in a lot of formats. It's a part of the Power 9 for a reason. I think a lot of CEDH players um, under-respect the power of wheels in general, but specifically Time Twister. Time Twister, a wildly powerful ability. But there also is a really big difference in between you drawing seven new cards and your opponent drawing seven new cards versus you drawing seven new cards and your opponents drawing 21 new cards. Definitely a bit of a difference there compared to the one we one formats. Do you think time twister is maybe actually too good for CDH Ryan? No, I don't. I don't think it's too good. I think it's a perfectly fine card. I think people are trying to min max this wheels thing a little bit too much. You mean to tell me that I have two cards in my hand. My opponents have four cards in my hand. I should not wheel and get seven cards in my hand. Get out of here. I'm going to do that. Yes, you can try and tell me about, oh, well, we've done some we've done some studies and this, that and the other. And I'm sure that that is, in fact, happened. So and so case where somebody cast a wheel, they ended up losing the game or whatever. Correlation is not automatically causation. Sometimes you're looking for specific data points and extrapolating your own results based upon that not trying to discourage anybody from doing this type of research and i'm not knocking on any of the people who actually did do that research because i think that stuff is really important but when we're in the thick of the game i've got two cards in hand and you've got four i'm going to give myself five extra cards i'm going to do that and time twister is a way to do that if i need to ship away somebody's graveyard because they fueled up a breach because i see an active led and brain freeze in there and they're about to tutor i'm going to ship that away with a time twister if they have something that 
you know, if I, if I need to get back into this game and I need to get a couple extra cards or something like that, I'm going to windfall. I'm going to Wheel of Fortune. I'm going to do that because it also is giving me seven cards for three mana. I know rates, this, that, and the other multiplayer formats. I know we can argue this all day long, but at the end of the day, I need those cards to win the game. The person with more cards in my hand is not going to be, is, is I'm just, I'm not going to win against that unless I draw perfect cards. And me getting visibility into more cards gives me a higher chance of winning the game. Anyway, that being said, I understand a draw seven for three is insanely powerful. Oh, and it goes in your graveyard, by the way. It doesn't even exile itself. So that's even even better. But we have printed so many cards since 1993-1994. And I would not argue that this card deserves to be in the spot anymore uh, of like a power nine even. Like I, I understand it's powerful. But you mean to tell me that that is one of that is number nine out of the the nine most powerful cards ever printed in the 30,000 card history of this game? I don't know if that's the case anymore. A lot has happened since then. I don't know if it really belongs on there. Every time I see a time twister resolve in a game of CDH, that game wasn't over. That wasn't Dockside. That wasn't Underworld Breach. I'm not saying those belong in the power nine. I'm saying that those are things that actually ended games. Time Twister isn't doing that. It's just kind of fueling that interaction, fueling that game to go forward. I don't think I don't think it should be banned personally, not in CD. Ryan, I would agree with you. I think Time Twister is a very good card. Wheel effects are strong, obviously, definitely more risky in a four player format than in a two player format. Of course. But um, yeah, Time Twister, it can stay legal in our version of CEDH, Ryan. But you said there's been a lot of cards mm-hmm. printed since the original Power Nine. Um, and a lot of the power nine are, in fact, something that we're going to talk about next. Fast mana. I know this is something that a lot of people hold a lot of opinions about because I think you could definitely make the argument that the prevalence of excellent fast mana is probably actually like the defining factor of what like makes CDH CDH. If we, you know, every mm-hmm. deck gets to play Mana Crypt and Soul Ring and arcane sick not arcane sick that's not a good example but mox opal and you know mox diamond Diamond, and chrome mox and all this kind of stuff all of these decks get to play these cards and all of these cards rapidly expand the amount of mana available to you and therefore the amount of game actions you can take or the amount of powerful spells you can cast and so it's a tough one i think i think there's a world in which you ban fast mana you know, or, or maybe the very best fast mana, you know, maybe you ban the the mana crypt or maybe you, maybe you ban the people don't really play Grim Monolith anymore. Maybe you ban the mana vault, maybe you ban the chrome box or whatever. But I think it, it could be hard I, without, you know, I think there can be CEDH without Thassa's Oracle. You know, Thassa's Oracle came out in 2019. Incredibly compact, incredibly powerful wing con. Sure. Dockside Extortionist came out in early 2020 incredibly powerful card you know it it doesn't define cdh i think if you almost like you know how brainstorm we all know brainstorm is actually way too powerful of a card to be legal in legacy maybe like realistically like it's maybe like it, it should quote unquote be banned or like how many cards are on the vintage restricted list because mishra's workshop is a card that's never actually gonna be restricted in vintage right like mishra's workshop yep. 
maybe should quote unquote historically have been a restricted card in vintage, but that's just never going to happen because it's, you know, a very integral part of the format that people care about, much like Brainstorm and Legacy. So, you know, I I think I would, for one, end up not banning fast mana and CDH because of that exact consideration. You know, I think it's it's weird to talk about that a little bit, but it's something that eternal formats kind of have to vie with. And, you know, I think if you wanted to make a CDH ban list and still have players left at the end, fast mana has to largely stay off of it. I, I really like that opinion, and I think it's a really good stance to take because there are real considerations to be said in that. You know, how many people would quit Legacy if Force of Will was banned? Just quit. They're like, there's no way I can interact with so-and-so without Ooh, this I love free counter mirrors. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> But yeah, like you said, you know, Vintage is almost somewhat dis- defined by these certain decks. Things like shops, like you said. You know, if they restricted that, that almost a piece of Vintage's identity would go away. And just like, but, but my counter argument is this. You can redefine and restructure things and people just hate change is really what it is. You can do that and a format can still survive. And a lot of people lived under this umbrella for so long, they feel that they can't live outside of it. And they think, well, there's no way that we can live without shops or there's no way we can live with this. But we've seen time and time again over the history of magic and over the history of how we've seen bands come and go that you absolutely can do that. And a lot of times they are, in fact, a net positive for the format. People just didn't want to lose it because it was either part of an identity or part of their favorite deck. I can name countless examples off the top of my head. In Commander, Golos. Golos, it rocked the world. I, they, they were so angry when that happened because not because nobody played it or because it was oppressive. It's because everybody played it. <laughs> that was the problem. Um, modern, Splinter Twin was banned. Oh my God. When Splinter Twin got banned, everyone who was playing Splinter Twin said, I'm quitting Modern. And everyone who was not playing Splinter Twin was like, thank God I just freed up half my sideboard. People hated Twin. Or and loved they were Twin. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was so polarizing. People weren't just mid on Twin. They was like, wait, 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 whatever. I don't care. You know, like it was absolutely polarizing, but Modern was better for it. And it made a lot of people upset, but it is in a better place because they were not afraid to be the bad guy and do the thing that was better for the overall health for the format versus just maybe hurting some people's feelings or making people feel bad that their favorite archetype was banned. I think fast mana actually should be banned. I like that we actually disagree on this opinion here uh, because fast mana we have plenty of formats that exist without fast mana and fast mana is is like you said kind of almost defining this format when people see you in casual commander play a mana crypt they're like oh is that a cedh deck mana crypt isn't only legal in cedh <laughs> mana crypt is legal in regular commander too but people automatically see a mana crypt thinking oh he's playing some high powered magic over there he's pub stomping us with a cedh deck because mana crypt has become so ubiquitous with cedh And the idea of maybe possibly getting away from that, and it would do so much to also nerf other strategies without absolutely removing them. For example, ad nauseum. The the way that you win with ad nauseum is you cast ad nauseum, but you also have to get the fast mana to keep going after you're done with the nause. And having enough mana after you spend five mana 
to actually be able to win the game usually relies upon you finding your zero and one drop rocks and stuff to then be able to make the additional four plus mana you need to win the game from there. Yeah. Today's podcast is sponsored by Card Conduit. Do you have extra cards lying around that you don't use? Want to buy or trade for some extra cards but don't know how to maximize the value? Then you should try out Card Conduit. Card Conduit is the best service when it comes to selling your extra cards. Don't waste hours trying to find the best buy list price for your cards online. Simply send them to Card Conduit and let them take care of the rest. I've used Card Conduit multiple times already. I always use them to get the best value of my extra cards. I get fair prices for my cards and they save me tons of time. They have three main services. Their standard service lets you send them unsorted cards of any value. They will sort, grade, and give you the best buy list price for your cards. Their curated service is similar. Send them your unsorted cards worth over a dollar in value. They will charge half of the fee of the standard service and charge no fee per card. Their new sorted service is a great value as well. Choose cards in advance with their selection tool, send them sorted to Card Conduit, and they will grade and buy list them automatically. Save yourself the time of having to send to multiple sites and let Card Conduit do it instead. Their fee is only 2% with no fee per card. With every service, Card Conduit provides a detailed report of every card they process. You'll know exactly what you sent and what they are paying you for each card. They give you the best price for your cards. They work with competitive buy listing partners, including ones not open to the public. Users get an average of 19% more for their collection than they would have from a major retail buy list, even with Card Conduit's fees. Card Conduit also optimizes buy listing for card condition as well. Since vendors have different penalties for wear and tear, Card Conduit will find the best buy list price against the specific condition of a card. So give Card Conduit a try today. If you sign up with my link in the show notes or the description, or use the promo code POWER, you'll also get 10% off their fees when you use their service. A big thanks to Card Conduit for sponsoring today's podcast. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so if we lost the Soul Rings, the Mox Diamonds, the Chrome Moxes, and the Mana Crypts, even just those four, this it would make Ad Nauseam less dominating. It'd still be an archetype, though, which is nice. You know, we would still have that, so it wouldn't completely eliminate it, because at that point, just ban Ad Nauseam. But, you know, we would have uh, certain things would also have a chance to shine more. How often have we said... Dork strategies, you know, like, you know, uh, elves and stuff like that. And, you know, mana dorks and stuff like that. Those don't have a place here because they're just not as fast as rocks. And that's brutal. So now you have to almost run stacksy kind of stuff just to make dorks work because you're just too slow because you got to wait a turn to use that mana. Could probably benefit from, you know, a little bit less of this fast mana dominating this format and just creating a, a speed that's so quick that you have to be live almost turn one. And I think that there's something that to be said for a shakeup and almost a balance uh, of doing that. And I also know that that's very polarizing because literally every single deck in the format runs those at least four rocks with the exception of maybe five decks, like almost none. You know, Ryan, I think that's also a very fair opinion. I think I personally could go either way, um, which is that that's the hard thing. Yeah, I, I like yeah, I like that your opinion is that you should keep them. I think that that's good. And uh, we should probably keep this moving, Ryan. We've been we've already been talking for a half hour and we have so many things to go through. <laughs> so one mm. thing I wanted to mention a little bit that I think we have to think about like a tiny little bit is, you know, what is what is always like the next best thing? I, I specifically recall the mm-hmm. first time back in I think it was the I forget exactly what standard it was, but the first time they had banned something in standard for a long time, you know, they banned three cards all at once they kind of banned one card from 
a, you know, a top archetype and another card from a top archetype. And then they said, you know what? We know that blue white spirits is going to be easily the best thing once we ban these two cards. So we're banning reflector mage too. just preemptively. We're just going to, uh, yeah. we're banning, we're banning, also banning reflector mage. Cause we know that um, once we ban these two best cards out of the two best decks, uh, blue white spirits is easily going to overtake everything. So we're just going to take out one of its like solid role players too. And everybody at the time was like, well, why would you, why would you even do that? Oh, 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 oh. well, you know, I'm happy that they did it. Cause I agree that that standard would have become miserable as a player of standard myself at the time, you know, an expert 17 year old Callahan, really. I agree. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think and that's always something to consider. I don't think you'd have to like ban something out of the gate to say, oh, obviously with Asus Oracle and Underworld Breach off the ban list, this next best thing also needs to come off. But, you know, I think there's maybe there's a world where obviously if fast mana is kept legal because that's an important part of this combo. Isochron Scepter plus a dramatic reversal, you know, good old ISO rev. Would that become too good for CEDH, quote unquote, too good? I don't think it would. Is there a world where ISO Rev maybe needs to go on the ban list eventually? Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I have less to say about this than I thought when I wrote it down. So I think that it deserves to be on a watch list is what I would say. I'd be like, OK, well, I remember the pre, you know, Underworld Breach, Thassa's Oracle, Dockside days, and those involved a lot of Paradox Engine. They involved a lot of ISO Rev. And that's how a lot of people would win the game. They'd win with like a lab man combo, but they'd also do something else. But overall, ISO Rev was a very major player as far as archetypes go. You would, but the thing I liked about ISO Rev was that you can't just have the two cards and win the game. You have to have a board presence to win the game. So you have to have something that will benefit from you untapping those every time. Sure, maybe a grape shot you would win, but you know that's that's a little bit more edge case. But for the most part, people would run them in Timnathrasios decks, and they would have a big dork package. So you'd be tapping and untapping all of your dorks, generating infinite mana, then sinking it into Thrasios to find your win con and win the game. That was all really really cool, but you needed a board presence to do it. So if I just Toxic Deluged and wiped your dorks away, and then you cast Iso Rev, you're not doing anything with that. So also on top of the fast mana argument, so if you don't have a whole bunch of mana rocks or you didn't establish a bunch of mana rocks, especially in the fast mana realm of things, Isorev isn't doing anything. So it requires more of a board presence, which allows you to be disrupted more easily, which allows for a little bit more of a balanced and, you know, I guess a more interactive game. You know, I agree, Ryan. Moving on, one last tiny little thing. You know what would not be on our CEDH ban list, Ryan? Draneth Magistrate. It's time. What are you talking about? It is time for some nuance. As many people know on the internet, if you happen to follow myself or Ryan beyond on just YouTube.com, you know, I'm sure that Ryan and I both believe that for a variety of reasons, Draneth Magistrate should be banned in the EDH format due to philosophical concerns surrounding such a cheap and readily available creature just getting to shut off everybody's commander in the format that is called commander, right? Um, obviously, mm-hmm. I, it's it's something I'm less ironclad belief in than I was before. I think it makes sense for it to be banned. I get why people don't think it should be banned, but you know where it would not be banned? CDH. I agree, hundred percent. In CDH, Draneth Magistrate is legal. There's too many. There's too many archetypes that allow you to just get your commanders 
uh, and just run away with the game. Or your commander is a central part of your strategy and being able to lock those down is really beneficial. In C-E-D-H, not in commander, because like you said, philosophically, the whole point of the commander format, literally in its name, is to cast your commanders. And it shuts it down asymmetrically, by the way. Uh, so you still get to play the game and everyone else has got to try and find a way to remove that thing. But the idea of Draneth Magistrate and CDH is just fine. You know, you need to be able to find a way to stop these people from being able to grind with Timna and Krom so easily. So they'll keep a package in their hand. They'll keep a seven that it's absolutely dumps their entire hand out so they can get Krom onto the battlefield. They're left with two cards in hand. Okay, well, if I cast a turn to Draneth before your turn, all of a sudden your hand isn't doing much. Your jeweled lotus is just dead. And you your entire hand was just based upon powering out Krom. Okay, now what are you going to do? So now you have to, it allows, it makes people think more strategically. It makes people try to get around certain elements and these things that are blocking them. It also makes them mulligan a little bit more wisely versus just being all in on just going on their commanders, relying so heavily on their commanders in the CDH format. And I know I can hear the detractors now saying, well, that's in commander too. Get out of my face with that. No, it's not. <laughs> it's way, way different when we're talking about philosophical fun and competitive things. And not to say that competitive it can't be fun because it can. I, I'm just I'm digging a hole now. So I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> Drandeth Magistrate is perfectly fine in CED. Ryan, I agree. All right. We've talked about power now for a little bit. We're going to move on to our second section, which should be a little bit shorter. And that is banning things for tournament considerations. Obviously, this is something that is entirely foreign to the current EDH ban list because it's a casual format. Not exactly uh, meant for tournament play. We just so happen to be doing that with CEDH. So if there was a CEDH ban list that would exist on its own, um, I think you would definitely at least have a few cards on there, maybe, for tournament considerations. Um, as the tournament scene has been picking up, we have been um, experiencing problems with certain cards. Some, you know, kind of on a one-off basis, and we're kind of worried for the future, and some have been... A little more consistent and i wanted to start off with a card that i don't think a lot of people would think of as problematic but as i have been looking down from the bird eyes view of paying attention of what's going on in tournaments and seeing what's going on and now that we're running our own tournament series the mox masters invitational tournament series um i have been noticing this one for sure uh seedborn muse uh thrasios decks Love to get their Seedborn Muse into play, and then they get to take so many game actions. Um, you get to untap with everybody. You get to sit there and go, hum, I have mana up, so let's make it look like I have some interaction in my hand. Oh, it's the end of your turn. I'm going to activate Thrasios three times with all the mana that I have. So I'm going to look at the top. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to look at my hand. I'm going to look at the card again. And uh, we're going to put that on the bottom and then we're going to reveal the top card of my library. Oh, it's a land that goes into play tapped. Excellent. Now I can activate Thrasios four times next turn. All right. Second activation. Look at the top. Look at my hand that I just looked at. Look at the card again. Look at my hand again. Put that on the top. Reveal the most meaningless card you've ever seen. I'm going to put it into my hand. You know, and, and that happens every turn for a turn cycle. You know, Mox Masters, December. Um, our tournament unfortunately became a little bit notorious for how long that tournament was. We were 
there for all day long and then some. Um, and a major, major, yes. major part of this was once we were inside of turns or even well before turns, um, there were some Thrasios Seedborn players that were taking up some more than their fair share of uh, the turn cycle. And, you know, we got to keep tournaments moving. We got to keep tournaments on time. We got to keep tournaments moving. And I think that we're starting to see it now. And I think there's a world in which it becomes more of a problem. Seedborne Muse possibly banned for tournament considerations. Yeah, basically, I agree with all of that. It, like you said, you know, uh, taking 30 sec, taking 10 seconds, even per activation of Thrasios on the end step is, you know, if you're activating Thrasios three, four times, that's 30, 40 seconds added on to every single turn, not your turn, every single turn. And what ma really made that a problem was, is that a lot of people aren't taking 10 seconds with it. They're taking 20, 30 seconds. Like you said, when you just took us through that wonderful adventure you just when you reenacted that just now and so everyone could experience the joy that is seedborn thrasios where you're like i'm gonna look at my hand and then i'm gonna i'm gonna put it down i'm gonna think about a while and i was like okay this is a slow play situation where a judge needs to be called you don't know your deck enough to to say okay that's a card i don't want put it on the bottom oh well there's considerations and this and that get out of my face with that you should know this deck you're in a tournament scene i could call you for slow play but the problem was, is that when we're in turns, everyone gets a turn and then the game is a draw, right? Well, the Seedborn Thrasios player gets a little bit of a mini extra turn at the end of it. And then everyone's priority bullying the Seedborn Thrasios player because they have all the mana and the interaction because they flipped their Pact of Negation. They flipped their Force of Negation. And so everyone's going to rely on them to do it now. So they're going to you know, activate Thrasios in response and all this other stuff, just like what you said. And it just adds so much time to the game and you can see it on everyone's faces in cdh when somebody's resolving a seedborn thrasios three activations a turn they're miserable it's like just get on with it you know take 15 seconds to do your activations but for god's sake just get on me. with it it takes so long to do yeah just kill me yeah just exactly in the game just finish the game please and it's a, such a problem because they just take so much time to do it. Even the best ones still activating four times a turn. You're still adding precious seconds on the end of every single turn. So for a tournament consideration, I 100% agree with you. The untap, oops, uh, the untap everything type effects need to probably go. Yeah, it's, like it's, the it would be the same reason where like, like if we were starting from an entire blank slate, I, I, I tweeted about this the other day because I knew we were going to be talking about it on the podcast. And somebody was like, oh yeah, Profit Accrue Fix would maybe finally be off the ban list. No, no, sorry. For the exact no. same reason why Seedborn Muse might end on to it, Profit Accrue Fix, exact same reason. It's it's Seedborn, but you can cast creatures as Flash too. Uh-uh. And it's cheaper. Oh. Yeah, I lived I lived in the profit of Krufix days. Those are some dark days. Basically, what happens is that if you resolve profit, you get to take you get to take uh, four profit. turns. That's a it. turn. It, every you turn. get to take yep, a turn exactly. at everybody's end step. So be like, OK, you're I get I get a I get a, a time a time walk every turn. OK, now well, hold on. Before you go to your turn, I got a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to do because I have lands untapped and I get to cast creatures with flash. So I just kept going and going and going. You basically had one in step to deal with that before the game was essentially over, but you still took 30 minutes to end the game because you could uh, do exactly lightning bolt on profit or you were just basically losing that game. 
and it was a problem. And Seedborn has a very similar problem. Yep. Moving moving on a little bit uh, to uh, two of our three things that I wrote down here. We've got Dividing top plus counterbalance. This is not something that we've seen uh, make a splash. Um, kind of for some obvious reasons, you know, counterbalance. A lot of people are split on that card. Some people who could bring counterbalance to, with them to events just choose to not. Um, we're a hundred card singleton, so it's not like you have four counterbalance and four top in your deck. You've got one of both, and it's a little harder to assemble. So we don't see it as often as you did in like Legacy, where dividing top was banned for tournament considerations but um we haven't had problems with it in the cdh scene but i could see in a world especially where the average power level of decks were lowered a little bit this becomes more of a powerful strategy and then you know you've got four turns that's a lot of turns where somebody can choose to say uh i'm gonna activate my top here really quick pay a mana uh i'm gonna look at the top three cards uh er, uh i'm gonna consider this for 10 seconds and then put them back this way and then reveal my counterbalance and Oh, your spells countered. Uh -huh. Isn't that funny? And you know that just the same way that even a, a Thrasios activation just takes a few seconds when you're doing three, four of them on everybody's turn, that adds up and dividing top plus counterbalance creates much of the same environment. Yes, definitely. Uh, another thing to consider is that when people see a counterbalance on the battlefield, they will auto yield yep. to the counterbalance trigger. They're like, oh, look, a game winning spell on the stack. Are you going to flip for counterbalance? And so everyone's like waiting for them to think about that. So there's an automatic like no no actions until counterbalance takes place kind of thing. And the person holding the counterbalance now has to ponder on whether or not they want to flip for it because now they're getting bullied into always flipping for it because they want to use that free resource or that free action to do it. And that's also a consideration that was slowing down games. I saw a game come to a draw because of it not too long ago. And it was because of counterbalance. Everyone's like, well, hold on, flip for counterbalance. Person had a Rhystic study in play. They had Sensei's Divining Top in play. So everything was changing constantly. So they would draw from Rhystic. So the counterbalance would be blind again. <clears throat> and then they would maybe flip for, you know, they would do the Sensei's Top thing at times or they would do some other thing. And so it was just making the game drag on with every single spell. And oh my God, this is a format that casts a lot of spells. So Sensei's Divining Topless Counterbalance just creates this situation, like you said, where it's miserable. Are they powerful? Yeah. Are they powerful as the things we ban? No. But for tournament considerations, if we want to get things moving, we want to make sure that, you know, we're going because we're already like our, our tournaments are already like 90 minutes plus and we don't have turns. We had to change that partially because of Seedborn Thrasios. Most 60 card formats, 60 minutes to play three games. We are 90 minutes to play one game. And having this kind of stuff take this long just creates such a extra load on the tournament, especially if it's a tournament that still allows turns that just creates such a miserable day for everyone because everything is just taking so long to execute. And our final thing here on our tournament considerations list, this was this is also it's been a bit of a contentious one over time, um, specifically at the event Marchesa in 2022, uh, the tournament organizer joking wrote up a little bit that uh, Kirkushima had um, Kirkushima had in particular caused some timing issues in that tournament, much the same as we just said that Seaborn Thrasios had caused some timing issues in our tournaments, and it it makes sense, you know, you get Kirk and you get Sakashima out, uh, kind of over. It's not deterministically over. People will make it through it, make you play through it, and playing through Kirk Sakashima especially if you're not 
a super skilled and experienced pilot with the deck can take some time. And it can often be very confusing for your opponents as to what's going on and what you're doing and what how the stack is being represented and what is on the stack and that kind of stuff. So if you're not, as a pilot, uh, good with helping people along in that regard too, it can just eat up time. We haven't seen this effect as much since Marchesa. I think uh, some of the conversation around Marchesa made some people not really bring it to tournaments anymore, which is like a shame because it's a cool deck. It's a powerful deck. Um, and I think people have also, as opponents, have learned more about the deck, know more about what's going on. Um, so they eat up less time asking questions and trying to interrupt and trying to figure out the best time to interact because there's times to interact in there. There's not many, but once you learn them, you remember them and stuff and you don't have to sit there table talking about it for 10 minutes, um, which helps. But the deck as a whole creates a lot of game actions. It can create a lot of confusion. It can create confusing stacks. All of that stuff can add up for time. I think if I had to make a choice right now, I certainly wouldn't put Krakashima on my ban list for tournament considerations, but it would be on a watch list. I would definitely put it on a watch list as well. The thing about Kirkushima is basically what you said, and it's full of game actions and non-deterministic loops. If somebody has a, a discard outlet, a Gitrog monster, and a Dakmore salvage in play, I'm okay to scoop it up because I know that they can just do, I know it's non-deterministic. That's not the case with Kirkushima. That is not a Gitrog loop because they still have to draw their cards. They still have to win their flips. They have to flip for every one. A, stack, uh, a round of priority happens in between every single flip. And people are always discussing, is now the time to interact? Should I do it here? Should I do it on top of it? Should I let them resolve this one? What about this role? What about that role? What are they going to do with that? Who's who, you know, wh who's the Jessica's will going to target? Should I get some stuff out of my hand? And there's so many things that are happening with these game actions and non-deterministic loops. And the Krakashima player isn't even guaranteed to win. So you have to see them play it out. And even the most skilled pilots during their turns usually take a long time. Ken, love Ken, absolutely. I think he's the best one. He's the he's kind of the uh, he's the brainchild of it. He's the he's kind of the father of it. And he still takes yeah, long and he, turns when he he's winning. moves through and, those faster yeah. than anyone I've ever seen easily. And he's, he's so good at it. And, and he's he very good at explaining to his opponents time. what's going on and keeping track of the stack. And he always yep. has a lot of copy tokens and all that kind of stuff, too. That's kind of what you need. And even, yes, even, even yeah. Ken playing like out an idealized turn can still take a couple minutes. Yeah. And that's that's a long time. And that's that's, you know, and that's a lot of actions because it's not like tank time where you're like thinking and pondering kind of like with top counterbalance or, you know, or with Seaborn Thrasios. This uh, things are happening. So there's rounds of priority constantly going on where people are also thinking and thinking about the hand. And now the time to interact. I'm going to maybe fire this off here or there. I don't know. Is it too late? And they're talking with the table about every single godforsaken flip that has to happen in that game. And that's what usually ends up creating a problem is that even though the, the flips are there and the pilot is good, they can still take a long time to do it because the loops are non-deterministic. You get your Jessica's will, you exile three cards. Oh, there are three lands. Okay. So now you got to kind of do some more stuff to try and get there and do all these other things. And it can really create these long games for tournament considerations that it can be a problem. I certainly agree with you, Ryan. And, you know, we're nearly out of time for today. We were going to uh, talk about maybe unbans or whatever, but we don't need to talk about unbans. You know, the EDH, 
I, I, exactly. I don't want to talk about it. And, and like we said, frankly. we kind of came at this with the assumption a little bit of a, we're working with a blank slate here. Most of the stuff on the EDH ban list as it currently exists is there for reasons that don't have to do with competitive Magic the Gathering. And so a lot of it could come off, you know, whatever. People like to talk about unbans in CEDH, mm-hmm. like for CEDH. I don't know, take it all off, put the power nine back on, slap, slap, uh, slap, uh, profit accrue fix on there too for tournament considerations. It's a decent start. <laughs> and then, then formulate the ban list from there to think that everybody's going to know everything that's ever going to happen when sets are constantly being released and new strategies could potentially emerge when you get rid of things like Thassa's Oracle and Underworld Breach and Dockside, there's no way to determine what is going to else is going to be able to be long on this ban list. And so you have to let the natural ecosystem determine that for you. Does the end, does the format end up in a really healthy place? Do new strategies emerge that start to dominate? Well, time is what tells you that once these things have cleared the path for those strategies to try and prove themselves. And so I wouldn't fill the band list with 100, you know, 100 cards or anything like that to start. I would do something like they did with Pioneer. Hey, we're banning fetches. Let's see what happens, you know, and that's the rest of it. And then they let the 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 players and the format determine what needs to be banned from that point. I thought that was a really cool strategy, and that's probably what I do here. I would ban, just like you said, power eight, these couple cards, and then let the ecosystem tell me what else needs to be a problem to be banned. You know, Ryan, I entirely agree. And, you know, we're out of time for the day. So if you are putting together a CDH ban list, you know, what What? What do you think you would ban? Why would you ban stuff? Um, would you start with the EDH ban list? Would you start with a blank slate? What do you think of the concept of a CDH ban list in the first place? Um, as I alluded to at the top of the, uh, as I alluded to at the top of the podcast, as interesting as a thought experiment this might be, um, having its own ban list not great. CDH being its own format, lots of problems with that. Um, as I said, I wrote an article about it. You can find it by searching my name and the concept of a CDH ban list. Google will show it to you. Um, if you're interested in reading more about that, but you know, make sure to give us a review on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and your favorite podcast ad creator, whatever that may be. You'd be surprised how much it helps people find us. And you can also find playing with power on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and more. All of those links are in the episode description. And that wraps it up for this episode of the podcast. Tune in next time when we talk more about our favorite format and our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Thank you so much for watching and listening, and we will see you next time.